In this episode, I talk with Carla Siegfried, Jacqueline and Alan Kolker, Distinguished Professor of Ophthalmology and Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity, and Professionalism at Washington University School of Medicine, about the gold standard glaucoma surgical procedure, the trabeculectomy. We exchange detailed tips for success for each step of surgery and post-operative care. It is clear from our discussion that we must continue to train others so that the trabeculectomy does not become a lost art. This is a procedure requiring no special devices and remains the gold standard for achieving low pressures despite its higher complication rate compared to other procedures. There are some audio issues with the recording of this episode that I've cleaned up as best I can. I'm Rob Scherzer, a Vancouver, Canada-based glaucoma specialist, podcaster, and health IT expert, and we're talking about glaucoma. Carla Siegfried, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. So today we're going to talk about the perfect trabeculectomy, or as I scribble on my Starbucks thing uh, or during the last talk here, perfect is the enemy of good. Yes, <laughs> yes. And in fact, I, I once had a talk that he gave for many years called uh, The Relentless Pursuit of Perfection, and it was about trabeculectomy. And we do all try to pursue perfection with it, but we don't often achieve that. Now, one thing that kind of scares me, I was talking to another colleague at this meeting, also a glaucoma surgeon, and uh, he hasn't done a trabeculectomy in the past year at all. So what is it with kids these days? It's frightening, actually. Uh, I'm very concerned about uh, how our young trainees are learning trabeculectomy, right. how our mid-level people are, don't have that extended experience, and it can't be a dying art. It must, it must continue, because when you look at our current knowledge of what allows our patients to retain their sight long-term, yeah. it's low IOP. Yeah. We don't have adequate neuroprotection. Certainly, our MIGS procedures do not provide, at, le at least our current MIGS procedures, do not provide low enough pressures to uh, compete with trabeculectomy, right. shall we say. There's always the trade-off. You know, the, the safety the, profile, the safety. yes. And so safe is great, but efficacy has to be our Even ultimate more goal. Important, yeah. Yes. Um, and because saving our patient's vision is the most important goal. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why we're all here. Uh, and if we look at some of the studies, even the primary TVT study, TRAB wins, yeah. just published recently. TRAB wins in terms of IOP control and number of medications. Uh, how that translates into ultimate long-term success with preservation of vision, time will tell. But right. right now, in 2020, it's our best way to preserve vision. So how do we do the perfect trabeculum? So, without any visual aids here, correct? Yes, talking yes. To our audience. So, imagine if you will. One, one must consider the perfect trabeculectomy in three parts: pre-op, intra-op, and post-op. Preoperatively, you have to have the right setting for the eye. You need to have everything as quiet as possible, be it toxicity from our topical medications, any other inflammatory condition surface disease, dry eye, steroids preoperatively, 
minimize the number of glaucoma medications, even consider a short run of oral Dimox to get you over the hump to get things quiet. Uh, I always use topical steroids for a week or two pre-op. Again, it depends on the situation, whether you have that luxury of time, whether you have that luxury to hold off on some of the medications. Uh, treating blepharitis, uh, not only for prevention of potential infectious issues postoperatively, but also just the overall inflammatory component. We all know that blepharitis dry eye are inflammatory conditions, so treat that. I think somebody quoted a figure like 78% of our glaucoma patients have myeloma gland dysfunction. Is that I would an venture that because or? I would venture to say that's probably not far off because now that we have electronic records, I it feels like on every patient when I'm uh, dictating to my scribe, I yeah. say MGD, yeah. MGD, MGD. Whereas I don't think I documented it prior to EMR. It was just not. It was just an extra three letters that I didn't right. record. Now there's a checkbox, and I, I think if I reviewed, that's probably not far off from reality. Uh, I use topical antibiotic ointments, erythromycin at night. I'll use um, even oral doxycycline in certain cases when it's so really pre-op. Pre-op, get the yes. Nice and quiet. Yeah, not for months and months, but just right. low-dose doxy for a week or two. Uh, it can really make a difference. Um, these people that you look at them and you're just you see this myelomian ooze. Yeah. Um, and then the and day. Then, then go going ahead. back to what was learned from the 5FU study, your big pressure drops leading to choroidal hemorrhage. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely will pre treat. Usually, I don't use uh, mannitol until, unless the pressure is over 30 or 40 there on the day of surgery. Um, uh, and it's amazing that even by stopping a drop for a week, or so before surgery usually does not um, cause that high of a pressure. Uh, so then on the day of surgery, uh, in terms of um, management, I use a topical lidocaine gel um, preoperatively. I'll put in a drop of phenylephrine preoperatively, and that will help with control of uh, bleeding at the time of surgery. It just helps a little bit. Uh, and then for my procedure, again, good visualization, very, very important. Um, place my 6 silk, and then a very tiny nick in the conjunctiva, and inject a bit of uh, lidocaine. Uh, and that will help to elevate the tissue. You have this beautiful plane between uh, subtenons and conjunctiva, on, excuse me, tenons and conjunctiva on one side, and then uh, episclera on the other. So you then dissected this plane. Even if there is some scarring at the limbus, you now have this beautiful plane. Yeah, I do I, that as well. I use uh, the uh, mini Westcott scissors, which are sort of a uh, in-between uh, Van S scissors and the standard Westcotts, because I try to keep my peritomy small. The smaller it is, the, sm the less you have to close at yeah. the end. Uh, and the less less trauma you're doing to the eye. The absolutely, less keep it. Keep absolutely. I agree. Uh, and then I dissect uh, with my um, Blumenthal conjunctival dissector, which is basically a little tiny flattened ball at the end of a yes. stick, and uh, it will not. A, A10 Blumenthal has been on the show. Yes. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I've, I've never had the pleasure yes. to, to, to meet him, so uh, that would be exciting yes. to meet him perhaps someday. <laughs> I'll put that on my bucket list. Okay. 
Uh, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful instrument. It's so simple, but you're not sticking a, a scissors where, especially as I work with trainees, I'm watching right. them chop around in the tissue, which I cringe. Yeah. If you can't see what you're cutting. Yes, oh, some, I've seen it. Blood vessels. You, you can imagine it, yeah. I've seen it. Yeah. And you just, yeah, you don't run into trouble and as best as you can. So I, I don't use any of the special clamps and, and I've considered that, but I will reach under and grab tenons. Uh, with a uh, serrated forceps and rather than grabbing the edge of conjunctiva, touch that edge as little as possible. Yep. Make a broad sweep and I'll, I'll push that uh, dissector to the hub almost. You want that flow to be posterior. If you've dis dissected Absolutely. that plane, you can have a very large posterior web. Um, next, uh, cautery. You don't have to over cauterize. You don't need to cauterize right at the limbus. You don't need to create a big astigmatism. Correct. Yes, yes. as we learned yes. uh, that that's a, a yeah. risk factor for astigmatism. Uh, and and the the flap, I, it's usually I don't measure anymore. But when I'm with trainees, I'll measure between two point five and three millimeters, and it's pretty much square. I actually prefer a square or rectangular flap. Uh, because with a triangular flap, you, I believe you have less um, control of flow. And so if you consider the fact that your uh, sclerostomy is, is you know, in the middle of the anterior edge of your flap, if you have uh, diagonal um, uh, edges that go to a point, as in a triangle, there's, there's um, more chance that you're going to have excessive flow and you're putting in more sutures. I like, it's, it's personal preference. I have no data to support and nor does anyone else between a triangle and a rectangle. Right. I do something in between. I do a trapezoid. So oh, there it's a little you go. bit wider yes. at the limbus. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you have a little that, more security because right. you don't and more want more coverage that flow. of the internal opening. Exactly. You don't want that anterior flow. And so when I do fashion my flap, Again, adjusting for refractive error per se, because high myops will have thinner uh, sclera for sure. Um, but get a decent thickness, 50%. You know, you don't know where the other side is, but just get a decent flap. So sometimes you'll see a little more um, choroidal show, as I call it. It looks yes. more gray um, versus you, it just looks completely white, but you have a nice uh, flap. And you get in that plane, I use a crescent blade, and you get in that plane and you just slide. Again, as I'm teaching our trainees, it's not you know this pushing and, and jabbing and sawing action. Right. It's a smooth um, uh, push through the tissue. Uh, you shouldn't have little jets. But if you retract the flap backwards, you can see where you are. Um, it's amazing what direct visualization can do for you. Exactly. So the concept when people were doing scleral tunnels for cataract surgery and they were comfortable with that, then you would cut down the sides of the flap because yeah. we would make that our, you know, a single site fake or trap. Now that we virtually 100% of the time do a uh, fake or clear cornea, you're using a separate site for your trap. So you're going to be sure to go as far anterior as possible centrally, but don't go so far anteriorly towards the edges because you don't want that excessive flow. Um, if there are vessels that you notice, there are those big episcleral um, 
aqueous draining veins. Don't do, do not, your flap there. Don't, you can have it in the center of your flap. That's but not at fine. the edge. And usually there is one right yeah. at 12 o'clock. Yeah. And um, I usually move my uh, flap a little bit nasally to save room for a future tube. It makes it a little bit easier. So I do go just a little bit nasally, but it's still within the confines of that bed. Um, if it's at the edge and then you're left to cauterize it, you have this distorted edge and you always have to put extra sutures there. Um, I, I forgot to with the incision, straight up at 12 o'clock or are you off to one side? I'm a little bit off, I'm a little bit off nasally, just a little bit. So I would say my sclerostomy and the right eye is at, you know, maybe one o'clock between 1230 and one o'clock, just a little bit off. And why do you opt for that? To save room for the temporal for, for another yeah. procedure, too, usually. But if it's perfect, you'll never have to do another That's procedure. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I then uh, instill a, a myotic, usually myocol, myostat, whatever, whatever you prefer, yep. because it really makes a difference in terms of iris prolapse. It will help, even though you don't have to do an iridectomy in a high myo, yep. pseudophake, who's on uh, anticoagulants, you do need to um, be prepared to do one. And I would say 95% of the time, I do a very small basal peripheral So do they get pilocarbine pre-op or you just No, I just inject it, yeah, I inject it, which I know is cost and it's Canada, so yeah. it's, <laughs> they may not allow you to use the myocol, but uh, we, we have not okay. been, uh, I do uh, put not a huge amount of viscoelastic in, but we don't want the chamber to shallow, especially in a fake patient. And with the 15 degree blade, I enter at the most anterior aspect of this dissection. I even push the flap anteriorly with sort of the uh, edge of the blade and go down straight perpendicularly. Um, a lot of people will, will bevel it. They will tend to bevel it and then bring their punch in as well at a bevel in a beveled fashion, I keep it straight perpendicularly, and then your entry is absolutely, it's really a corneectomy, it's not a trabeculectomy. Uh, you really often are uh, anterior to Schwalbe's line. If we did histology, we would know that. Um, so you're basically, would you say you're just at the end of the vascular arcade where you're entering? The yes, 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 more or less that's probably accurate. And then I take a uh, maximum of two punches. My, yep. my uh, Duckworth punch is uh, 0.75 um, millimeters, 750 microns. Uh, and there was a study once a long time ago that showed that it needed to be at least 500 microns. Bigger is not better. If, it's, if there's flow, there's no obstruction, there's flow. A hole is a hole. And then it's a matter of uh, and you go quite vertical with the punch too. Correct. Yes. Yes. Because then you're not going to have this beveled edge yeah, that could like be perpendicular a flat. To the Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then comes the art of the procedure, and that is which the is the closure. next three months. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, the closure of the flap, having enough sutures, it's okay to have too many, but it's important to have enough. And I am meticulous about. Uh, irrigating out all of the viscoelastic and assessing flow. And I do it a few times. It's not just once, oh, looks good, we're done, let's close. 
I will inject BSS, irrigate out the viscoelastic, and then observe the flow. If I see a gush, if you see this stream of fluid, you know you're going to need additional sutures. It will shallow. It may not shallow. It will soften significantly. And so I routinely put in two releasable sutures at either corner. And I like releasable sutures that are buried in the cornea because then I don't even have to move them to the laser. It's right there in the office. I grab a forceps and it's very easy, especially in patients with thicker tenons where it may be more difficult right. to visualize. Yeah, it's really, really hard. Um, and then I will assess flow and the way I want to leave it, and again, it depends on what that pre-op pressure was. So if the pre-op pressure was 35, I may aim for a pressure of 18. And if the pre-op pressure was 17 and it needs to be nine, then I will aim for 10 to 12. I virtually never aim for anything less than 10. And that's the art of assessing IOP interoperatively by um, touching the cannula onto the surface of the cornea and, and feeling what it's like. And I really aim to teach my fellows and we, we we, I test them. And I'm usually within a point. I'm always yeah. correct. No. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm the standard. The and they standard. will, yes, and they will, I'll say, no, that's that's too high. No, you need to loosen that suture. I, we need another suture. Do you ever do intraoperative tonometry? I don't. Just, do I. Just, <laughs> just experience. I can tell what the pressure is. Um, and you really can by seeing how, feeling how soft it is with, with the cannula. Some of them, and I think some of my colleagues use fingers. I don't like fingers, just use a cannula. Um, and then I put in additional permanent sutures. It is rare, but occasionally all the excess flow is through the posterior edge of the flap between my two releasables, and I will place a third releasable. That is pretty rare that I have done that. Uh, and then I go on, I take one last swipe with the Blumenthal because sometimes, oh, I skipped the mitomycin, but we all know the mitomycin step. Keep the sponges back from the limbus, never anywhere near the limbus. I do yes. not place them on the, on the flap like we used to do in the old days with 5-FU. Um, but keep it very posterior yeah, and absorbed. So a nice low diffuse blend. Correct. And I, as a general rule, I use sponges and not injection. And here's why. The studies, there's not much difference in terms of IOP and the appearance of the blood. There may be a little benefit to uh, injection, injection of mitomycin. However, you can't take away injection of mitomycin. So when you open and you think, oh, this is a 65-year-old gentleman, he's probably got pretty nice tissue. Yeah. There's no turning back. And you look and there's no tenons. None. It's usually the 85-year-old ladies, but you can be you can be surprised. And there you've already placed a, a load of mitomycin. What do you use for your sponge? Uh, actually, we use the the um, commercial Mitosol, and it has small cell sponge segments in it. So that's what we use. In the old days, we used to cut off, cut, cut apart the Maricel um, instrument wipe and put those on there. And that old adage that you only remember the complications, or I guess some people only forget their complications. Okay. Having uh, lost a sponge once and having to fish it out, I switched to using uh, mini neuro patties. They're oh. five by five millimeter sponges that have a, 
a have suture, a, a, like a string attached to right. it. Right. I use two of those. Oh, interesting. Way back there okay. and I just pull the string. We all count together and <laughs> in the room. Yeah. And I say, OK, one, two, three. Yeah. We time it. and. Uh, and then we all make sure there's there's yeah. I've had it where it has gone under the superior rectus yeah. and it's yeah. even though I usually try to place it on one side or the other, occasionally somehow it gets there. And I've I've had that panic moment before. Where's where's the third yeah. sponge? In terms of intraoperative bleeding, when cautery isn't doing it, do you have epinephrine handy? We do. We do. It's yeah. rare. It's yeah. very rare that I Yeah, used just that. some people are vasculopaths. Yes, yes. I find that it's always handy to have. And I don't, that reminds me, I do not discontinue anticoagulants as a no, general yeah, rule. Do I. Life is Life, more important. Correct, correct. Yes. CVA is worse than, yes. than um, an NLPI. And I, and I discuss that with, with patients. Sometimes they're on you know, Eliquis and it's not for a great reason. And I talk to their cardiologist and they're very comfortable discontinuing it for a couple of days pre-op, but I immediately restart it right after surgery. Um, so we've dealt with pre-op and intra-op? Yes, well, I did the closure, oh, the closure. Sure. So um, my, uh, my closure is a running horizontal mattress, kind of a modified Condon um, method. And uh, I use a 9-ovicral on a VAS 100-4 needle. So it's an amazing needle and uh, it's a special order suture, but I love it. So. <clears throat> And when you get to nine, you hit monofilament. Yes. Instead of, yes. Instead of yeah. Um, and I work as hard as I can to, to uh, have the conjunctiva flip over the knot so you don't have exposure, but it's not always perfect. Um, so post. Yeah, because if you try to run the one that isn't a monofilament, it starts to fray and, and you're stuck. Yes. Partly. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm do the wing suture at each end in a horizontal mattress in, in the middle, center. but I make uh -huh. sure it's not leaking. Correct. And put in more if you need yeah. it. Yeah. And it just depends on the tissue. I mean, sometimes you can draw it tight like that, yeah. but other times it's it just, yeah. So, um, so post-op. Post-op uh, is critical. So steroids is number one. And I use steroids for a couple of months, uh, really up to three months post-op. Uh, I start out with pretty high dose. I use diflupredinate um, or prednisolone, depends on cost issues, and occasionally preservative-free dexamethasone, um, which is not always easy to get, but we have we have a pharmacy that will make it up for us. Not, not as potent though either, right? Oh, you, you could get away. The dex is actually pretty potent. I mean, I- that would be 0.1%? Yes, yes. And I will use that um, QID is sometimes at the beginning every um, two to three hours, which yeah. is how I use PRED for the first week. Yeah, I use week. PRED every two hours yeah. for the first three weeks. I routinely, yes, I routinely use um, diphopredonate because it is Q, I use it QID. And usually if they can get one bottle of it, it'll last me the first month to six weeks, and then they can switch to prednisolone yeah. after that. Just, Was there a shortage here in the States uh, for, for PRED or the... Not that I know of. Okay. I haven't heard that one okay. yet. There's been a shortage of everything, of everything. else. I used to use uh, atropine when I was a fellow. Yeah. And I stopped because there's really, I could not find a good reason for it. My, I don't have shallowing. In those rare cases that there is shallowing, then I would initiate yeah, it. Yeah, that was part of the Maltino cocktail 
way back in the days and sort of was carried on, not yeah. from any study, yeah. but supposedly pulling the ciliary processes back. Right, for deepening, but. Right, and also some potential anti-inflammatory effect. Right, and, it's, and if those are, that's the situation, I can yeah. always add it right away. But my patients usually don't, they, they go to work right away. So they want to have their accommodation as much as possible or and their overall um, quality of vision. Um, I use antibiotics for a week um, just because, and I also restart antibiotics and use them three for three days after pulling a suture because there is a small epithelial defect. Any betadine when you pull the suture as well? No, I don't. I just pull it. Um, the sterile forceps, but I just, yeah, I don't use Any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory as I well? don't routinely. I do not routine, but I don't on my cataracts either, so. Uh, if someone is high risk for CME or they have baseline CME, sure, but that's pretty pretty rare. Um, so the then, timing of, of so the, yes, that's, that's the art. That's, that's, that's the second step of the art. And I never remove a suture less than a week out. I mean, if it's six days or eight days. Except when you do. Except right? when I do, yes, yes. yes. But as a general rule, Absolutely. it depends on the timing of that yeah. first visit. Yeah, because there's no, once you do that and the chamber's flat. And then you are, yes, you are, yes, you're royally in trouble. So uh, I will remove a suture um, early, that is at one week, yeah. if one of two things is, has, is, is present. One is there's a lot of injection. Um, I cannot massage behind the flap and easily increase flow. Because just a high pressure is not a reason to remove a suture. The yeah, first if you do a little massage and it goes right down. And it goes right down no and you can see where the flow is, you're fine. If you massage and nothing happens, then I gonio. If there's a big blob of heme, that's one thing. If there's some other untoward substance blocking the sclerostomy, namely vitreous that sponge. capsule, the <laughs> no, sponge, no. No. Uh, iris, you know, then then removing the suture may not be appropriate. You need to manage what's occluding it first. Um, I will remove one suture if there is blood. Uh, and you know, uh, rare cases of injection of TPA or something like that. Yeah. That's really rare. Uh, so I would remove a suture if there's a fair amount of injection, elevated pressure, um, but usually I wait. To, the popular times of, of uh, suture removal are at two weeks and three weeks. Um, and yeah, I try to get them to three weeks. Yes, but two weeks, yeah. you know, if they have a fair amount of tenons, I'm okay with that. And oftentimes I'd say 90% of the time, not removing any suture. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on yeah what your what your flow state is. So if I'm more case. may just be anecdotal. If it's a combined procedure, you're a little more aggressive. More yeah. like more likely to. Yes. Work. Yeah. I, I think off the top of my head, I would say 75% of the time I remove at least one suture, and 50% of the time I'll remove both, and then cut others as as necessary. Uh, with laser. No, I'm I'm a laser suture license person. I don't have the. You don't have releasables, so you kind of same so. thing. It's the same thing. I just find it easier. 
Uh, does take a couple more seconds to place a releasable, but not that right. long. It's not that much of a difference. I would venture to say less time than walking them to the laser. That's true. <laughs> but when I do, I use the eight-hand Blumenthal laser suture license. Yes. Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Another plug. Another plug. <laughs> no financial interest, no, I'm no, sure. Yeah. Not for him either. Yes. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, just keep, the key is to keep the flow going, keep the steroids on board. And... Um, uh, always reassure patients that, you know, the, the blur. So in terms of blurred vision, right. just one comment, that the more severe the glaucoma is, and I tell them this beforehand, you may have more uh, compromise of your vision initially, and it may take a little bit longer yeah, to resolve. I tried to warn them it could be three months before they stabilize with the vision. Yes, yes. To, try not to worry about it. But I have to say it again several times post-operative. I know. Yes, yes. And they, you know, in their 2030 on day one, they're like, it's blurry. Yes. Is this supposed to be this way? Oh you know, you have two, two nerve fibers right. that are functioning. <laughs> yes, it's, it's just right. great. Thank God yeah. we didn't snuff out. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's my trap in a nutshell. I think it's I, the perfect trap. Yeah. All right. And I hope all the young ones out there are listening. <laughs> It's 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 uh, it's really critical that everybody. I, I like I uh, the analogy of it's great to do laparoscopic cholecystectomy, but you have to know how to do an open wound as well. You have to know how to how to do a full laparotomy. So. Thanks for talking great. about glaucoma. Thank you very much. That's our show for today. Talking About Glaucoma is a podcast of indeterminate frequency and duration, recently averaging four episodes per year. I'm still hoping to get this out monthly in the future. It's available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podcast Addict, and many other podcast services. Please rate the podcast on your podcast player of choice, subscribe to it, and tell your friends about it so that it can reach more listeners and encourage me to continue to produce new episodes. Follow me at West Coast Glaucoma on Instagram and Talking About Glaucoma on Facebook. Drop me a line at podcast at iguy.org. That's podcast at iguy.org with your show ideas. If you would like to be on a future episode or questions you would like to have answered on future episodes, keep informed to prevent needless loss of vision from glaucoma. See you next time on talking about glaucoma.